Hi, I'm Trevor. And I'm Laura. We're married, and we like to do a lot of different things together. But what got us together initially was that we love to eat and we like to drink. And we love to learn how our favorite foods and beverages came to be. In each episode of this podcast, we'll talk about something delicious and answer the question, Where did this come from? So it's taken a little bit. I'm finally feeling in the uh, in the Christmas spirit. If you are will. you? Yeah, I, I finally today started as we were kind of tidying up the house, getting ready for the week. Uh, started playing Christmas music nonstop. Mm. Really feeling it. I know. I'm feeling, it. and we haven't even decorated yet. We because, haven't decorated, which well, I, the new addition has kept us from decorating so yeah. far. So we'll. We don't want her to like eat everything and have yeah. to take her to the vet. And <laughs> I don't know. but I think we're ready. I think this afternoon we should. We yeah, we gotta get some, the, some lights outside stuff. anyway, and then we'll we'll get yeah. our tree this week, and we'll we'll go from there. But yeah, yeah needless to say, it's gonna be an unconventional Christmas season, this is true. Uh, holiday season for those of you who don't celebrate Christmas. Um, but still, it's gonna be it's gonna be good. I think. I think yeah. this year has probably made everyone a little bit more thankful for what they do have. Right. Um, obviously, it's a tough year, but at the same time, I'm still looking forward to the holidays. It's going to be small. It's going to be just the two of us mm-hmm. uh, for the first time ever. I know. Uh, in It'll the probably day. be the first. It'll be the first time we've ever woken up on Christmas morning in our own house. That's true. Usually, we're in ten years. Around, ten so. years of being together, we've never we've never slept in our own house on Christmas Eve. Yeah, so that'll be nice. It'll yeah. be fun. Making, It'll be great, and we've got making the best of it. Yes, plenty to celebrate this year for sure, for sure. But anyway, let's get into the episode. Lots to talk about today. Yeah, this is going to be a fact-filled. Episode. It will be. I can already it tell. Will be. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Where Did This Come From? The podcast where we talk about all things delicious and their origin stories. I'm Trevor. And I'm Laura. And this week we're veering off course a little bit in the sense that we're not really specifically talking about a, a specific food. food or a specific beverage. Um, but this week we are talking about something that has always fascinated me, uh, having spent my entire professional life in the food and beverage industry. And that, of course, as you know by now, because you saw the title of the episode, is Prohibition. Mm-hmm. Yes, a really interesting time in American history. So in case you don't know, um, which most of us do, but Prohibition was the legal prevention of the manufacture, sale, and transportation of alcoholic beverages in the United States that ran from 1920 to 1933 under the terms of the 18th Amendment, which was actually added to the Constitution wow. to prohibit manufacture, sale, and transportation of alcohol in America. So the actual act of drinking was not prohibited, but all the avenues to get something to drink, alcoholic drink, were blocked. Exactly. And that was very strategic. Yeah. Uh, Which actually, I have a little bit of that in in, in fun facts. You jumped right to the end of the episode. Laura's (laughs) ready to wrap it up already. (laughs) Pack it in. Let's pack it in, Trev. Um... But yes, it technically was not illegal to drink alcohol or right. to consume alcohol. But manufacturing, transportation, uh, and uh, all the things production, that yeah. lead up to having a literally, cocktail. which is it's easy to say it's not illegal to consume it, but all the stuff that would get to the point of consuming it right. <laughs> was, was illegal. Yeah, interesting. Okay. So prohibition was ratified by the uh, the states on because I don't know it's we don't have to go into too much background of how an amendment gets added to the Constitution, but Congress will. Um, draft an amendment to the Constitution, 
It'll be proposed to Congress, and then it has to go to the states to be ratified individually one by one. And I don't remember if it's a, a majority or if it's a three-fourths or two-thirds, something like that, mm. of the states have to say, yes, we will, yeah, we will adhere yeah. to this. Yeah. So on January 16th, 1919, the 18th Amendment officially went into effect, or was uh, adopted, ratified, added to the Constitution, and then it went into effect one year later. On January 17th, 1920, uh, with the passage of the Volstead Act, which we'll touch on a little bit later. But what it was, it was really Congress coming up with a set of laws that would actually govern it uh, and at a federal level. Mm-hmm. So you can say, hey, you can't do this, but there's there were still no guidelines or rules in place to actually right, keep right. that. Yeah. Uh, so why was alcohol banned? It's a pretty big question going into this. It must have been something like money. Right. There was uh, there was a lot going into it. Actually, it wasn't. It wasn't really? necessarily okay. money. Uh, it was actually a little more wholesome than that, strangely enough. Um, so in the 19th century, alcohol was a really huge problem in the country. In the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, around that time, so middle of the seventh or middle of the 19th century, uh, specifically on the frontier, mm-hmm. uh, it was a really extremely destructive um, tool to family life mm-hmm. or vice, I should say. So men would go to the tavern, they would drink away their mortgage money, and they would drink so much that they really couldn't go to work the next day. They would beat their wives, abuse their children, like all the tropes you'd imagine. And that's what really launched the beginning of the temperance movement in the 1800s. It was a women's movement against abuse at the hands of drunk men. Hmm. So it's kind of hard not get behind that concept, to be totally honest with you. That's interesting. Actually, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth uh, Cady Stanton... Both um, famous suffragettes. Uh, they started out as temperance workers. Interesting. And they turned their energies towards getting the vote for women because they realized that was the only way they could change the laws involving drinking. Right. Oh, wow. So both of those laws actually happened right around the same time. Uh, women's suffrage and uh, the passing of the 18th Amendment. Because it was 18th and right. 19th Amendment almost right. back to back. Right. So the average consumption of alcohol, this is how bad it was in the 30s and 40s, sorry, 1830s and 1840s, uh, <laughs> was about three times what it is today, Wow, which is huge. So was that, I mean, because obviously we like pull at the thread of like alcoholism and I know there's like a, so many factors, um, but was, could it be attributed to how difficult life was on the frontier that people could not essentially they were trying to self-medicate yeah they were basically trying to cope right and they didn't know how yeah people weren't as emotionally tuned in yes uh at that point wow so yeah that's a fair that's a fair thing to say for sure and uh you know wine wasn't actually really a huge uh element of drinking Mm -hmm. at the time so the fact that the drinking level was three times what it is today Add that with the fact that it was mostly pure alcohol. Right. It gets even crazier. It's like messier. Yeah, exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. And more addictive as well at the same time. And men and women actually didn't drink together in public Mm. at this time. It was considered uncouth to do so, except for the very wealthy who would do it at, you know, parties and all the gatherings they would have. So the tavern was really a male kind of centric place uh, and a place for specifically very unhappy men to To like go and get to get after it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds super fun. Wee, yay. <laughs> Time for a good old bar fight. So do you know the the first state that passed prohibition legislation in the U.S.? Um, 
Massachusetts. Well, I was going to say Massachusetts. Pretty close to home. So many. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Massachusetts. Uh, the fine Commonwealth of Massachusetts in 1838 uh, passed a temperance law banning the sale of spirits in less than 15 gallon quantities, which is essentially a keg. Wait, you couldn't you couldn't buy it unless it was a keg. You couldn't buy anything less than a 15 gallon right. quantity. So, so they like, were trying to just have like bars. Buy really? It? Yeah. Like so they would at least cut back on consumption in in homes in and home, things like yeah. that. And but think about it too, like you you would have to buy a barrel of whiskey even. You couldn't buy a bottle of whiskey. Like right. it was illegal to do that. Right. Now the law was repealed like two years later, it failed. But because it was the first law put into place in the States, it set the precedent for such a legislation to actually happen right. down the line. Yep. Because if there's no precedent, generally you're not gonna get a lot of stuff happening. Well, something else that was fueling the temperance movement uh, at the time was the fact that there was really strong anti-immigration uh, and anti-immigrant sentiment in the country, mm-hmm. which unfortunately is something that doesn't necessarily die with time. Right. Um, but at this point in the northern and eastern cities, political machines were dominated uh, by immigrant tavern owners delivering votes to congressmen. So essentially it was this system of like, hey, I will rally my my bar patrons hmm. to vote for you by like buying the vote essentially. So people in the middle of the country thought that alcohol was fueling that political movement in the cities. Hmm. So it was another reason for them to want to cut it off. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And in the South, uh, the South wanted to keep alcohol away from black men, hmm. which is just another power yeah. grab of how things were being run at that time. Yeah. So that was yeah. a really strong motivator for it too. So by the turn of the 20th century, um, temperance societies were a really common fixture in communities across the states. And women played a really strong role in the temperance movement because alcohol was seen as a destructive force in families and marriages, Mm kind of like I was touching on before. I was going to say, this is a really good place to stop and talk about a woman named Carrie Nation, uh, who was one of the most influential figures of the temperance movement in the build-up to Prohibition. So Carrie Nation was born Carrie Amelia Moore in Kentucky in 1846. And as a young woman, she married a man named Charles Gloyd, whose hard drinking uh, soon killed him and left Nation alone to support their young child on her own. Mm. So naturally, this experience instilled in Carrie a lifelong distaste for alcohol. Right. So she never drank. Later on in life, she married a man named David Nation, hence Carrie Nation, who uh, he worked as a preacher and a lawyer, and eventually they settled in Kansas together. And it was there that she was involved with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, or the WCTU. And the WCTU was founded in 1874 by women who were concerned about the problems alcohol was causing their families and society. Yeah. Just one of many of these temperance um, societies or communities, if you will. And at that time, obviously, unfortunately, women lacked many of the same rights as men, and their lives could be absolutely ruined uh, if their right. husbands drank too much. Yeah, yeah, my gosh. Hard Which, spot to be in. Really hard spot to be in. Like, you have no rights, and if you went forward with this, and you're like, hey, my husband's drinking too much, they're like, well, that's not our problem. Mm-hmm. You're just a woman. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. That's kind of BS, to be honest with you. Uh, in addition to alcohol prohibition, over the years, the WCTU lobbied for a really long list of social reforms, uh, including women's suffrage, of course, mm-hmm. uh, and the fight against tobacco and other drugs that could have that kind of addictive vice to them. Mm. So in 1880, 
Kansas became the first state to adopt a constitutional provision. Uh, again, Massachusetts was the first to like put legislation in place, but Kansas was the first to add to their state constitution a provision banning the manufacture and sale of alcohol. Mm-hmm. But prohibition in Kansas was enforced really unevenly uh, and with many saloon owners ignoring it entirely. Just like right. saying, screw you, I'm not going to shut down my business because of this. Right. And because of this, Carrie Nation came to believe she needed to abandon the nonviolent methods of the WCTU at the time in order to make an impact. Oh, geez. She literally took matters into her own oh, hands. Oh, dang. So on December 27th, 1900, Carrie Nation smashed up the bar at the Carrie Hotel in Wichita, Kansas, causing several thousand dollars of damage and landing herself in jail. Wow. Now, she was released shortly after, but she became famous for carrying a hatchet and wrecking (laughs) saloons as a part of her anti-alcohol crusade. Wow. She literally would destroy saloons with her followers. I mean, that's like kind of badass, but like also... (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's entirely badass. Like she was literally, she was a vigilante. She was taking the law into her own hands. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. I don't know if I should be appalled or impressed by her. A little bit of both, to yeah. be totally honest with you. Uh, and look up look up Carrie Nation. Like, she was... A no-nonsense kind of lady. She looked like a no-nonsense kind of lady, for sure. She actually dressed very similarly to how Queen Victoria dressed. Hmm. She wore a lot of black, a long veil. Oh, interesting. And was very, like, like rigid-faced, nice. yeah. Yeah. So after the incident at the Carrie Hotel, her fame just ballooned right. out. Uh, and she continued her saloon smashing in other locations, and traveled extensively to speak out in favor of temperance. Wow. She even sold souvenir hatchets to help fund her activities. Oh she God. had merch. So, yeah, she was like a really smart businesswoman. She was. It just like it goes to show you like when – I don't I don't know. I mean not that what she did was right and or anything like that or that prohibition was the right legislation to fix these issues. Ooh. But um, people can become so blinded by what they think is right. Exactly. Exactly. And that echoes through time before yeah. that and after it literally right. to and today. currently. She actually used the name, because her middle name, uh, her initial was A, so she used the name Carrie A Nation. Oh, she's yeah. carrying the nation. Very, very clever. Wow. Um, so Carrie Nation, uh, unfortunately for her, uh, died in 1911, never living to see the nationwide prohibition in America that mm. she worked so hard to get towards. Wow. So that was a little bit about Carrie Nation. There's actually a bar. I hope they're still open um, because of everything that's been going on. I'm not sure. But a bar in downtown Boston called Carrie Nation. Oh, I didn't know that. Which to me is so funny because it is literally spitting in her face by calling a bar right. her after right. her. Yeah. <laughs> now, in 1906, a new wave of attacks began on the sale of liquor. And this was led by – this was an actual group called the Anti-Saloon League which was established in 1893, the ASL. Uh, and it was driven by a reaction to urban growth, as well as the rise of evangelical Protestantism and mm. its view of saloon culture as corrupt and ungodly. Hmm. The Anti-Saloon League. Wow. So what did they do? Uh, they they did things to... a little bit less okay. uh, forceful than Carrie Nation okay. did. They, because they were mostly men. They were able to actually try to do things through law and things mm. like that. So... In addition to all this, many factory owners actually supported Prohibition uh, because it was in their desire and in their best interest to prevent accidents and increase the efficiency of their workers in this time period of the Industrial Revolution uh, with increased production, extended working hours, things like that. So Mm. the more sober their staff was, of course, the less accidents there were, the less 
incidents there were and the, the more product they were pushing out and the more money they were making. Hmm. This went on, you know, kind of kept picking up steam, picking up steam. And then in 1917, the U.S. joined uh, in with World War I. So after entering into the war, President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, instituted a temporary wartime prohibition mm. in order to save grain for producing food. So beer, whiskey, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, everything was going shut towards. Down. Yep, the war effort, yeah. And then that same year, in 1917, Congress is uh, submitting the 18th Amendment, So it, which again was banning the manufacture, transportation, and sale of alcohol. So it went to Congress to the floor in 1917. Okay. And because you give like certain periods of time for any bill to become an actual amendment or law, they had stipulated a seven-year time limit for the process for the 18th Amendment to, to be ratified. But it received the support of the necessary three-quarters of the U.S. states in just 11 months. Oh, wow. Which is incredibly fast. That is fast. Incredibly fast. Some things go through that whole time period and they'll expire, and they just never end up oh, on the Constitution, yeah. which is why there's only 26 or 27 amendments right. to the Constitution. So like I mentioned before, uh, the 18th Amendment was ratified on January 16th, 1919, and went into effect one full year later. And in, in literally the first line or second line, or I should say section of the amendment, it says that this will go into effect one year from today. Yeah. Okay. So the so country had a- years ago. They had a year to- years they, ago. Yeah, it's true. This year, well, this past January, almost yeah. almost 101 years. Yeah, exactly. Almost actually, almost 100. And, yeah, um, yeah, almost 101 years. Yeah, yeah. I can't do math. Very <laughs> simple math. <apparently. laughs> uh, and at, by the time it actually went into law, so in 1920, uh, no fewer than 33 states had already enacted their own prohibition legislation. Wow. And I should have looked up how many states actually were in the union at that point. But it's somewhere in the in the forties anyway. Yeah, which is crazy. So in October nineteen nineteen, we're, we're like a couple months out at this point from it actually going into effect. Congress put forth the National Prohibition Act, which provided the guidelines for the federal enforcement of prohibition. And this was championed by Representative Andrew Volstead of Minnesota, who was the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee at the time. Uh, and the legislation was commonly known as the Volstead Act, mm -hmm. which was the set of laws for federal. Uh, enforcement of prohibition, prohibition at the time. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I've heard that before, but I never made the connection. So both federal and local government, needless to say, struggled to enforce prohibition, as we all know now, uh, over the course of the 1920s. And enforcement was initially assigned to the IRS, oh, wow. which is interesting to me, uh, but it was later transferred to the Justice Department. Was that just because they were following the money trail? I don't know, to be totally honest like with you. The sale I have no idea. Alcohol. They were probably like, uh, yeah, let's let the revenue service deal with it. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure. But anyway, like I said, it was transferred to the Justice Department and the Bureau of Prohibition, or the Prohibition Bureau. They've been called both things as I was mm -hmm. going through these notes. Now, in general, prohibition was enforced much more strongly in areas where the population was sympathetic to the actual law. Right. Mainly that was in rural areas, small towns, and like really loosely um, in urban areas. Like it wasn't really followed right. closely in cities. Yeah. We're like, eh, we're going to do it without. Exactly. So we're like, I mean, the saloon kind of popped up in this time, right? Are the saloon existed before this, but. Um, or sorry, not saloon, speakeasy. Speakeasy. That's what I'm talking exactly, about. Exactly, yeah. exactly. 
So actually, really good transition there. Um, despite the very early signs of success, which actually included a decline in arrests for drunkenness and a reported 30% drop in alcohol consumption, those who wanted to keep drinking found just ever more incentive. Found a way. Yeah, yeah, way more inventive ways to do it. I mean, as soon as you tell someone they can't do something that they've been doing for a long time, they're going to just keep on forging ahead. So yeah. the illegal manufacturing and sale of liquor, which was known as bootlegging, mm-hmm. uh, went on throughout the 1920s. Uh, and along with the operation of speakeasies, which if you don't know, stores or nightclubs that are selling alcohol kind of on the sly. Sometimes you have to have a, know a secret password to get in, which has become like a, a, a thing fun again. thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so the smuggling of alcohol across state lines and the informal production of liquor or moonshine, bathtub gin, and in uh, yeah, all that in yeah. private homes like increased. In right. fact, because of that, thousands of people during Prohibition actually died. Right. They were they essentially were drinking, like, poison. Oh, yeah. Gosh. And going back to sort of the temperance folks, it was bringing the alcohol right into the homes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it also, a really well-known side effect of Prohibition, it encouraged the rise of criminal activity associated with bootlegging. Mm. Um, so obviously the, the mafia was a pretty big layer in the product of the uh prohibition era Mm. and the most notorious example was the chicago gangster al capone who uh he earned a staggering 60 million dollars annually from bootlegging operations and his speakeasies and i looked into this because i wanted to know so 60 million dollars in 1930 would be about $935 million in 2020. Whoa. That's what he was making annually at his height. That's insane. In illegal money. illegal yeah. liquor sales. Yeah, so people still found a way. Yeah. I- illegally. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and these like illegal operations, they fueled a huge rise in gang violence, yeah. including most famously the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago in 1929. Uh, in which several men who dressed up as policemen, uh, who are believed to have been associated with Al Capone, it's never really been proved, mm. uh, they shot and killed a group of men in an enemy gang in the middle of the streets. Whoa. Yeah, huge deal. Yikes. Okay, I can't imagine living in that kind of yeah that kind of fear state. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I feel like... That kind that, of fear state. That <laughs> yeah, we have our own fear state these days, but... Um, Not for long. So the high price of bootleg uh, bootleg liquor, because so much had to go into it, the production had to be so secretive, it had to go through all these levels, it just, it was really pricey. The nation's working class and poor were far more restricted from drinking during Prohibition than the middle class or upper class mm-hmm. was. They just could get it more easily. Right. Even as costs for law enforcement, jails, and prisons spiraled upward, um, support for Prohibition was waning by the end of the 1920s. I'm sure. People were just fed up with it. like, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. And because the country was, like, deep in the Great Depression by 1932, because it hit in 1929, um, creating jobs and revenue by legalizing the liquor industry had a really big appeal to a right. lot of people across the country, yeah. especially in the center of the country where all of the grain would have been going towards right. making whiskey right. and beer, of course. So enter da, 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 Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was running for president the first time of the four times he ran for president. <laughs> uh, and he ran that year on a platform calling for Prohibition's repeal and easily won yeah. over uh, the incumbent president, Herbert Hoover, 
who was the guy on steering the ship when the Great Depression hit. Right. Like Hoover, Hoover took over the presidency in January of 19 or March of 1929, October, the stock market crashes. Right. He inherited like the most booming economy in the history of the country and it he basically Tanked. drove it into the ground. Yeah. They actually would call the hovels that people would move into when they were kicked out of their homes, they would create these like tent cities mm. uh, in like central places like Central Park and right. in DC. They called them Hoovervilles. Yes, yes. What a wonderful president he was. Um, So FDR's victory meant the end of prohibition. And in February 1933, Congress adopted a resolution that was proposing a 21st Amendment, which would repeal the 18th Amendment. And the amendment was submitted to the states. And in December 1933, the 36th and final necessary state voted for ratification. Can you guess whose state that was? Was it Massachusetts? It was not. Okay. Uh, it was a trick question. Uh, although, strangely, one you wouldn't think would be the, the final and deciding vote, Utah. Interesting. Who has some of the strictest alcohol laws in the country yeah. to this day. So a few states continued to prohibit alcohol after Prohibition's end, uh, most notably Mississippi, who didn't end Prohibition until 1966. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So the real great irony of of the repeal of prohibition is that it actually became harder to get alcohol when it was legal mm. after repeal day, December fifth, nineteen thirty three, which we just passed the anniversary of on Saturday. Yeah. So when it was illegal, all you really needed to do was like bribe a cop or a prohibition agent, and that was really easy to do because everyone was just so driven by money. Right. Uh, in, during the earlier part of the 1920s when everyone was driven by money and then specifically after the Great Depression started, everyone needed money. Yep. And you could sell alcohol to literally anyone at any time of the day. It didn't matter what the age was or where you were set up. It was easy to come it, by. It was quite easy. Yeah. Um, as is any kind of street drug that's illegal technically if you need it to be. Right. So the 21st Amendment gave really specific authority over alcohol laws to the states themselves which proceeded to establish various agencies, rules, regulatory committees, things like that, age limits, uh, closing hours to bars, licensing, all of that. Uh, And all that controlled drinking, which had been really uncontrolled in many parts of the country before and during Prohibition. Right. So Yeah, so becoming legal. Yeah. Basically, a bunch of places had to kind of like jump through hoops that previously weren't there. Yeah, all 50, well, I don't know, 50 states, but all the states at the time were given like free reign to make whatever laws they wanted to control, which is why you see like Miss, I think, yeah, Mississippi was the last one, but also like Kentucky was a late one too. Mm. Um, Surprising. States making at that point their own laws saying, well, yeah. we're going to keep it in place because it's been working for us. Yeah. So nearly all of the liquor sales rules we have still in place today did not exist pre-prohibition. Mm. And all of those were put in place like post Interesting. Yeah. I mean, Massachusetts does have some pretty strict liquor laws. They do. We've watched them get less and less, less strict, strict over yeah. the years. Um, uh, not that long ago, I think maybe 20 years ago, you couldn't sell alcohol on a Sunday. Right. Yeah. Unless you were a bar or restaurant. Right. Like on-premise consumption was okay. Yeah, but like all the liquor stores or wine shops would have to be closed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, our town where we live... I think maybe a couple years before we moved here was a dry town. So that is as nutshell an overview as I yeah. can give of Prohibition. That was a good high level. Obviously, yeah. there's a lot we didn't touch on. Right. Um, if Ken Burns can do an entire miniseries documentary on this, 
There is so much to talk about that we didn't get into. Yeah. But I did save some fun facts. Okay. Fun fact away. Uh, so some say that FDR celebrated the repeal of prohibition by enjoying a dirty martini, which oh. was his preferred drink, hmm. which I do not like. I don't really either. A little too much for me. I don't want a salty beverage. I'm going to throw that one out there. If you like it, enjoy it. Get after it. The olive juice is just going to go to waste if you don't if you don't put it in your martini. But So like you asked or you brought up at the top of the episode, it wasn't illegal to drink alcohol during prohibition. So the 18th Amendment only forbade the manufacture, sale, and transportation of intoxicating liquors mm. verbatim from the actual amendment itself, not their consumption. So by law, any wine, beer, or spirits that Americans had stashed away prior to January 17th, 1920, mm. were theirs to keep and enjoy in the privacy of their homes. So it wasn't illegal to enjoy alcohol in your home. Right. So for most, this was only a few bottles. So it was right. like really like coveted. Right. Um, but some really afful- affluent that's not a word, affluent drinkers, uh, built huge wine cellars and even bought out entire liquor store inventories in the year leading up to Prohibition. So they had healthy stockpiles. They were literally like doomsday preppers for alcohol. (laughs) Now, some states refused to enforce Prohibition entirely. Maryland, for one, never Mm. enacted enforcement code for Prohibition and Mm. eventually earned a reputation as one of the most stubbornly anti-Prohibition states in the (laughs) Union. Go Maryland. Yeah. New York followed suit and repealed its measures in 1923. Okay. So technically in New York state, it wasn't illegal. Yeah. Uh, And other states grew increasingly lax as the decade wore on just because this is, we can't, we can't be doing this. Yeah. Mainly because the federal government put this law into place and then basically told the states. Use your resources to figure it out. And a lot of governors were like, no, like this is. There are other things to be doing. Huge strain on. On their, like, coffers, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Maryland was most famously. Go Maryland. <laughs> uh, Drugstores were actually allowed to sell, I'm using heavy air quotes, but medicinal whiskey oh. to treat everything from toothaches to the flu. Okay. And with a physician's prescription, uh, patients, <laughs> yeah, they could legally buy a pint of hard liquor every 10 days. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like the early days of medicinal marijuana in some states. Uh, right. So the pharmaceutical booze often came with seemingly laughable doctor's notes. Uh, Like this was a a quote from something that was written down in my research, but take three ounces every hour for stimulant until stimulated. Oh, I feel appropriately stimulated. Also three ounces an hour is like a double. So like, that's that's a lot. If you keep doing it hour after hour after hour, obviously. Uh, And actually many speakeasies eventually operated under the guise of being pharmacies. Uh, and legitimate chains actually flourished from this. And according to Prohibition historian Daniel Okrent, who a lot of my notes came from an interview with him, uh, he said, windfalls from legal alcohol sales helped the drugstore chain Walgreens hmm. grow from around 20 locations to more than 500 during the 1920s. Oh my gosh. So Walgreens Got sold it. a lot of alcohol <laughs> during Prohibition. And this was my favorite one, so I saved it for last. Winemakers and brewers found really creative ways to stay afloat during Prohibition. Mm. Uh, A lot of small distilleries and breweries continued to operate in secret and just kept doing what they were doing. But the larger, like more legitimate ones had to kind of figure out something. So uh, Yingling and Anheuser-Busch famously both refitted their breweries to make ice cream. Oh. Which I'd love to find old adverts for Anheuser-Busch yeah. ice cream or Yingling <laughs> ice cream. I wonder what it tasted like. Uh, Coors actually doubled down on the production of pottery and ceramics. 
random. I know. I know. I, I'm trying I to find the connection, connection too. There. Yeah, I don't okay. get it. Uh, but hey, they they had the money and they pivoted. Um, others produced what they called a quote unquote near beer, uh, which was a legal brew that contained less than 0.5% alcohol. Mm, so kind okay. of like, so kind of like O'Doul's. Yeah. Or... Kind of like O'Doul's today. Uh, now most of, most of the brewers get the lights on by peddling malt syrup, which is actually I've used in home brewing before. Oh. Uh, but it's a quote unquote legally dubious extract, uh, that could be easily made into beer by adding water and yeast and okay. allowing time for fermentation. Okay. So yeah. like the make your own. Yeah, literally. Yeah. The raw like, materials. Here's some basically. malt extract. Yeah. Uh, do with it as you will. There's also instructions in the back on how to make beer. Uh, <laughs> winemakers also did this too in a similar way by selling chunks of grape concentrate called wine bricks. Oh. That you then would just add water to to like rehydrate it Ooh, and then add yeast. so bad. I mean, it's probably safer than making bathtub hooch. That's true. That is true. Where does the word hooch come from? I don't know. You know, I forgot to look that up, to be honest with you. Okay. Should we do a quick on-the-fly Google? Yeah. Please hold for on-the-fly Googling. And we're back. (laughs) So uh, the word hooch was apparently popular among bootleggers during Prohibition, and it first came into use during the late 1860s. Uh, shortly after the land that is now Alaska was sold from Russia to the U.S. Okay. It's short for Huchinu, which I, I might be mispronouncing, but Huchinu, a word used by the Tlingit, who are an indigenous people from Alaska, who ref- used that word to refer to a fermented beverage made from dried fruit. Oh, interesting. So, hooch. hooch. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I... It's an old indigenous, uh, a shortened indigenous, indigenous word, word for alcohol, basically. Interesting. Cool. Okay. Thanks for the on-fly Google. No problem. Thanks, Google. Uh, <laughs> so I only had a few resources. As you can imagine, there is a... Yeah, I'm sure there is so Oh my gosh. Info. A slew of resources for this. Uh, OldTrustyHistory.com. Help me out with this one. Uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. Couldn't do it without you. Uh, and then uh, Time.com. Specifically an interview with Daniel Okrent, who I mentioned earlier, who is the author of a book that I really want to buy and read called Last Call... The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. Mm. Daniel Ulkrent is a fantastic writer. He's he's actually one of the people who started fantasy baseball. Oh. Whole nother thing there. I'm not going to get into it. Yeah. But he's also featured on a lot of Ken Burns' documentaries oh, as well. Okay. Really, cool. really knowledgeable guy in a lot of different areas. Specifically Prohibition too. Hmm. Awesome. So yeah, that is, that is and was Prohibition. Nice. So thank goodness it doesn't exist now. Yeah. I can't imagine... During Great Depression, um, needing alcohol more and not being able to get it. Yeah. I mean, there's, we're obviously going through a, a much shorter period of time now with different struggle. But, right. you know. Yeah, having I, a glass of wine or yeah, a cocktail. It really in helps. Moderation. Yes, it's not of like course. we're like drinking ourselves silly. Absolutely not. <laughs> but, no, in moderation. Uh, um, in the right it does scenarios. kind of, you know, help relax a little bit. Yeah, so. it does. So having that outlet is yeah. Uh, is yeah we had a good lo- a good amount of answers to our Instagram. Yes, so I want to touch on that. The bees yeah. knees, bees Manhattan, knees was popular. Um, uh, old fashioned, old fashioned, which I am a big old fashioned fan as well. Always yes. have the stuff on hand to make an old fashioned. Uh, what else? Uh, rum cocktails, a few different floating around rum mm-hmm. cocktails there that people really enjoyed. So yes, thank you for your. Thanks for sharing your opinions and your favorite cocktails with us. Uh, yeah. And then there were several out there that just said bourbon 
which isn't technically a cocktail, but I'm going to allow it because yeah. it doesn't have to be. Well, I will allow it. Bourbon glass, sure. good. Yeah. Enough said. I think, I don't know what my favorite cocktail is. I'm kind of between like a Negroni and like a margarita. That's fair. I mean, those are two different so seasonal. very different seasonal cocktails. I mean, Negroni is good any time of the year. True. You can have it on a, a really yeah, hot summer day. True. It's a really good warming winter cocktail mm-hmm. as well, I find anyway. With the I know. I think of it as a wintry cocktail, but yeah, you could yeah, we drink it in the summer too. I mean, we drank a few of them this summer. <laughs> I'll throw that one out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as true cocktails go, oof, that's tough. I think true cocktails, old fashioned. I'm going to go back yeah. to the, the what basics. some consider as the first cocktail mm. as the old fashioned. So... Yeah, cool. it's 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 great. It's again. Yeah, I miss good going to a bar and like getting a fancy cocktail. We'll get there again. I know, I know. We're not going to how to how to act anymore. <laughs> like I don't know how to handle this situation. When we get back there. Do Where do I put my hands? What do people do with their hands when they're at the <laughs> bar? Like, I'm not sure what to do. Uh, yeah. Now we're very much looking forward to that day in the hopefully not too distant future, um, where we can go and enjoy saloons and mm, speakeasies, speakeasies one more time yes that would be lovely but but until then thank you as always for listening in folks we always appreciate it don't forget to rate review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms and you can follow us on instagram at where did this come from pod so that's at where did this come from underscore pod we do show updates and wine facts and some little dog pictures oh, now yeah. again so definitely <laughs> we'll always use our dog to to get questions and answers answers to questions from you so. yes so um but stay well and be safe everyone and hopefully we'll be able to uh see you all at a bar someday yes, and get a good yes. cocktail but until then we'll see you next week for another episode of where did this come from <laughs>